0: All right, Judges 11 is where we are this morning. We are nine deliverers in, nine judges in to this book. And boy, nothing says Merry Christmas like the story of Jephthah, man. Whoa, this is in God's sovereign providence to land on this passage. It's actually, on the one hand, incredibly funny. On the other hand, I think by the time that we're done with this passage of scripture, you will see some very similar things between the Christmas story and this account of Jephthah. we're going to break this chapter up into three main sections, three main parts. They're lengthy. This is a very lengthy chapter. But I want us to see the whole of it because I think the Author of Judges wanted to have the whole of it seen because we need to see uh, Jephthah's character, we need to see his choosing, we need to see the ability that he has to reason with the king, and then we need to see his rash vow, as many of you know, that he makes. So let's dive in together. Uh, The first section that we're going to see actually starts in chapter 10, verse 17. Chapter 10, verse 17, all the way through chapter 11, verse 11, and we're going to call this the choosing of Jephthah, the choosing of Jephthah. We're going to find out why he becomes a deliverer. And before we dive in, let me ask God's blessing once again on our time. We need his help, so let's ask him to do that which he loves to do and to give us aid and help us now. Father, we come before you a broken people, a needy people, a desperate people, and we ask that you would perform miracles in this place, by giving sight to fleshly blind eyes, by giving affections to hearts that otherwise would be dead. God, point us to your grace in a way that we would not be able to be unaffected, but we would be changed. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Chapter 10, verse 17. The sons of Ammon were summoned... They came to camp in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzpah. So there's going to be a fight, and the people of the leaders of Gilead said to one another, We need help. Who is the man who is going to begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. We need help. We don't have a leader. We don't have a king. Remember, there's no king in those days. We don't have a king. We don't have a a ruler, a military uh, leader. So the problem is established. The Ammonites are going to fight. We need help. Now, verse 1 in chapter 11, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. That's good on your resume, valiant warrior, hooray, but he's the son of a harlot. Um, That's not good on your resume. So we've got valiant warrior, yay. We, We like that about him, but he's the son of a prostitute. That also reminds us of Abimelech. You remember Abimelech was the son of a prostitute with Gideon, and that didn't end very well. So These people are are considering Jephthah, not too sure about him, valiant warrior, but son of a prostitute. And that added to problems. uh, End of verse 1, Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when the wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out, and they said to him, you're not going to have any inheritance in our father's house. You're the son of another woman. So Jephthah was driven out by his brothers and his sisters, his other uh, half-family members, he said, we don't want you to get part of the inheritance because you're the son of a prostitute. You're not true blood, full blood, so get out. They drive him out. Poor Jephthah, just a couple verses in, very dysfunctional family. And he does what anyone in this situation would do. He goes into organized crime. So he goes out into the wilderness. He lives, verse 3, he flees into the wilderness, lives in the land of Tob. And my Bible says worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah. Worthless fellows. My my favorite translation of worthless fellows is the NIV translation, which says adventurers. (laughs) So (laughs) I guess you could say adventurers in the sense of like evil pirates have adventures. These are worthless people. So these are marauders, these are pirates, they're all together, and Jephthah is their leader, so that makes Jephthah Jack Sparrow. So we've got Jack Sparrow leading this band of pirates, and it came about, verse 4, after a while, when the sons of Ammon were fighting against Israel, that the sons of Ammon fought, and the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Okay, he's a valiant warrior, we don't like his ancestry, all the things that are going on in his past, but you know what, we have no other help. Verse 6, they said to Jephthah, come out, be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Help us. That's very interesting, because they're going to say, they're going to do and say the exact same thing that we saw in chapter 10. You remember in chapter 10, Israel decides we don't need God, we're going to go after our own idols, and then they get in super big, deep trouble and they say, we need help. And they go to God. And they go to God only when they are in their last ditch effort. And so God says to them, you came to me at the very end. Uh, I, I'm your last option. You should have come to me first, but you didn't. And so let your other idols, let your other gods save you. Just I'm not going to save you. You let your other God save you. The exact same thing is happening here. Israel is treating Jephthah the same way that they treated God. They despised him. They kicked him out of their land. But now when they need him, they're going to say, can you help us? And Jephthah's going to respond the way that God responded. Verse 7, didn't you hate me and drove me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? Let the people that you went to before save you. You you hated me. And look at what they say. Verse 8, for this reason, not negating that, that actually did happen. But now, for this reason, that was truthful, we've returned to you so that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon, and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said, verse 9, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I then become your head? Will I become your leader? And the elders of Gilead said, yes, as the Lord is witness between us, surely we will do as you have said. So Jephthah says, basically, you're asking me to fight, and if I win, I will be your leader, but if I don't win, I'm going to die. So what does this profit me? What's going to happen? And they say, no, no, trust us. We'll we'll let you be leader. He says, okay. So Jephthah went out, verse uh, 11, with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This is the choosing of Jephthah. The Ammonites are about to attack. Gilead is caught in a leadership vacuum. And so they're only going to have one option here. They go to the outcast Jephthah, the man that nobody wanted. And this outlaw is going to become their savior. Jephthah's problem was not his military ability, but his mother. Uh, Jephthah's father, Gilead, had this affair with the prostitute. Jephthah was born. And yet, God is going to use this man, the son of a prostitute rejected by his brothers, to be the leader in Israel. He used to lead thugs. He's a pirate. And now he's going to lead Israel. Israel. Already we see one huge implication that we've seen time and time and time again in this book. And I love the way one commentator says it. Maybe someday we will see it enough times in Scripture that we will cease to be surprised at the unlikely instruments that God uses to deliver us. Maybe one day. Maybe one day we'll see it enough where we'll say, okay, I'm not surprised anymore. God uses the weirdest things. He uses a talking donkey and... Numbers chapter 22. He uses the weirdest instruments to bring about his purposes. The choosing of Jephthah. Number two, the reasoning of Jephthah. The reasoning of Jephthah. This is in verses 12 all the way down to verse 28. So Jephthah has now been chosen. Verse 12 Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you've come to fight against us? Why are you fighting against us? What have we done? The kings of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, "Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt and from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably. Now you stole our land; return them peaceably." But Jephthah sends messengers again to the kings of the sons of Ammon, and they're going to say something. And what Jephthah is going to say? It's a threefold argument, and it is brilliant. This argument is brilliant. Verses 15 through 27, it's the longest monologue in the entirety of this book. It's the longest speech in almost all of the historical books. This is a huge speech. And it's a threefold response that Jephthah's gonna give. It's gonna tell us many things, but the biggest, most important thing that it's gonna tell us is Jephthah knew his Bible. Jephthah knew his Bible and he knew biblical history. So let me read these verses and then I'll break it up into the threefold argument. Verse 15. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped beyond the Arnon, but they didn't enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sion, the king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said, Please, let's pass through your land, let's go, let, let us be at peace. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his own territory, so Sion gathered all of his people, camped in Jehaz, and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them, so Israel possessed all of the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites and the, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people... Are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us we will possess it. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he strive with Israel? Did he ever fight against them? When Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you. But you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. That's his speech. Three points that he makes in his speech. Number one, a factual reason why they should not be fighting. And he says, Israel never attacked you. Remember, the king of Ammon said, Behold, Israel took away, verse 13, my land when they came up from Egypt. They took away my land. And factually, they never did. Israel never attacked them. They wanted to pass through. They asked, Can we pass through peaceably? And the kings said, No. The whole reason we have the book of Judges is because they did not fight. Remember, God had said, Drive them out, and they failed to do that. So Jephthah says, No, no, we, we no, never, we never fought against you on our own initiative. It was you guys who fought against us. And as we defended ourselves, we won. We were just defending ourselves, and we won. So factually, we never stole your land. You tried to fight against us, and we won. Second, a theological reason. Um, Our God gave us the land. You have a God. Your God is Chemosh. Our God gave us the land. If you want this land, get a better God, because apparently our God's better than your God. Um, Finally, a historical reason. The people had lived in that land for 300 years. The people in the generation who lost the land knew they lost it, they never cried foul, they never said, well, time out, you you took our land from us. They said, well, we fought against you, you defended yourself, and then we all died, so of course, you can take the land. They never cried foul. And this generation, 300 years after that previous generation, is now saying, hey, why is this land not ours? We should go get it. So Jephthah says, factually, we never attacked you, you attacked us. Theologically, just get a better God then because our God has given us the land. And historically, you've never, your people have never said that this was wrong. And now all of a sudden you're saying it's wrong. The pirate king, Mr. Jack Sparrow here, is a great historian, a decent theologian, and a very good speech giver. But it doesn't work. Verse 28, the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him still wants a, a little rumble in the Bronx, says, nope, I'm going to fight you. Disregards the message. That brings us to number three, the vow that Jephthah is going to make. The vow that Jephthah is going to make, this is verse 29 through the end of the chapter. We've got the choosing of Jephthah, we've got the reasoning of Jephthah, and now we have the vow of Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, verse 29, so that he passed through Gilead. And Manasseh. And he passed through Mitzbah of Gilead. From Mitzvah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. That means that Jephthah has everything that he needs to succeed. He has everything he needs. And yet he's going to make this vow because he does not trust that he has everything that he needs. He has the Spirit of the Lord. And yet, verse 30, Jephthah is going to say, If, Lord, you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. He doesn't need to do that. He has the promise of God in the Spirit of God, and yet, simply because he does not trust the Spirit and he does not trust the promises of God, he's going to make this vow. He's going to negotiate with God. He's negotiated with the people, with his own people. Hey, wait, you you drove me out, and now you want me to be your king? Come on. He negotiated with the king, and now he's negotiating with God. And he's going to say, God, your spirit and what you've given me is not enough. And that's why he's going to go off onto this promise, this rash vow that he makes, which I think has amazing parallels to our day and age. In evangelicalism, we have the fullness of the revelation of God in this book. And yet, how many people aren't content with just this book? I need more. I need more. I need a word from the Lord. I need something else. And we see so many people that go off of the rails of orthodoxy, chasing after the something else. Jephthah's going to go crazy. I don't think people are going as crazy today, but it parallels that so well. He's going to make a rash vow. Rash vows were made in the Bible a lot. Vows were made in the Bible a lot. One of the most famous is Saul. He made a rash vow. He said, if we win, then whatever, uh, or no, he, before the battle, he said, um, before we fight, nobody eat until we have a victory. And right after he says that, he says, I'm going to kill the first person who eats. And Jonathan, his son, is the first person just eating honey. I just picture Pooh Bear just shoving honey in his mouth. And, and everybody goes, uh, no, you can't do that. And Saul says, I'm going to kill my son because I made this vow. And, the soldiers just say, don't do it. Like, You don't have to do it. Break the vow. And Saul goes, okay, I'll break the vow. Should have happened here. Some people think that Jephthah is vowing that whatever animal comes out of his house first, he will sacrifice as a burnt offering. I actually don't think he's saying that. This is a, just by the way, this is a hard passage. We're going to get into hard stuff here. Um, but we have to try and reason with the text. I personally believe that Jephthah is thinking of a servant. The first servant that walks out of my house I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Here's why I don't think that it was an animal. Number one, animals probably weren't living indoors. They probably weren't in the house. They are probably outside of the house. So when he says whatever comes out of the doors I will sacrifice. Secondly, grammatically, there would have been a neuter noun. That's a different form of a noun that's here. Third, he says, uh, whatever comes forth could be translated whoever comes forth. Um, so, grammatically, it would have been a, there would have been a better way to say whatever animal comes forth instead of whoever person comes forth. Also, comes forth to meet me has some intentionality to it, right? Not like just a lamb, just like, hey, bouncing out of a house. And finally, genuinely, let's think about it. If he was thinking, I'm going to sacrifice an animal, then when his daughter came out, he would have gone, hey, honey, it's so good to see you. Um, Not you, obviously an animal. I meant an animal. He would have just said, it's going to be an animal. That leads us to the question, could Jephthah really be intending to sacrifice a human? We have to remember that this book is about the canonization of Israel. Israel is losing their worship of the one true God, and they're starting to become uh, syncretic with other religions, mixing their Worldview with other worldviews. Pagan nations, when they really wanted to solve a problem, they would offer a human as a sacrifice. That was what you would do. One of the books that I had to read for my doctoral studies, entitled The Role of Human Sacrifice in the Ancient Near East. It's a lovely afternoon read. One author in that book says this, quote, usually that of a degenerating society attempting to find desperate solutions to their problems would sacrifice a human. This is ultimate bargaining. Human sacrifice is ultimate negotiating. You're paying God with what's most precious to you. But here we already see the hints of the the point of this passage. When you think that you can make God do something, if you give up something precious, then you are failing to understand grace. That's not how grace works. When you think if you give something up, to God that's precious to you, I can force God to do something. You're misunderstanding grace. Again, this is very similar to the vow that Israel made. Israel said, okay, do whatever you want to do to us. Just please deliver us. We'll take the punishment. We'll take whatever. Just please deliver us. This is what Jephthah is saying. God, do, do whatever you want, but I'm going to sacrifice something to you that's precious to me and just give me this one thing. Just give me victory. Jephthah is operating on this level but could he really be intending to offer a human as a sacrifice? Let me just, two cautions. First, we shouldn't think that Jephthah did not think that human sacrifice was wrong. He's not naive. He knew the Bible. He knew biblical history. So we shouldn't instantly think that he had no idea that this was wrong. But second, we need to be careful not to think that Jephthah wouldn't be above doing this. Um, we tend to think, well, he's a man of God. Certainly he knows the law, so he must be obeying that law perfectly. But people who say, surely Jephthah would have never done this, are assuming that he's consistent with what he knew. But how do we know that he was consistently consistent? How do we know that? Just look at some of the heroes of the faith. David committed adultery, then tried to cover it up by murdering, and still tried to cover it up. What about Solomon. Solomon would end up, through his wives, his multiple wives, would end up offering babies to be burned in the fire. So I don't think it's beyond somebody to get to this place. Maybe Jephthah thinks that Yahweh is actually similar to Chemosh, the the god of the Ammonites, the god of the Moabites. This is a picture of what happens when everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. So we have this rash vow. And then verse thirty. 2 and 33 are the entirety of the battle. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hands. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim. Uh, So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. That's the end of the battle details. No details. Why? I mean, we have so many battles in this book with so much detail about the battles, but this one, just flying right through it. Why? Because I think the author is trying to get us back to this vow. He wants us to see this vow. He's shocked by the vow and the way that he's calling upon God to help like a pagan would call upon their God, and he wants to keep our focus on that. And so he will. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child, similar to Genesis 22 language. She was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I can't take it back. She said to him, Father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And he said, go. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. She had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel. But the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is is a rough text. And because it's a rough text, many people want to just say the vow that Jephthah made was a vow of uh, celibacy. That his daughter would be put into the service of the Lord and therefore be celibate. Uh, There's a couple reasons why I don't think that that's the case. First, women did serve in the tabernacle. They did serve the Lord. But they didn't have to remain virgins to serve. They didn't have to be celibate. They could get married. Secondly, if she is going to remain celibate in the service of God, why does she take two months to mourn that celibacy when she's going to have a lifetime ahead of her to mourn that celibacy? Like, you don't have to mourn for two months and then go into the service. Okay, so if this really is... Him offering his daughter as a burnt offering. Why did he keep his vow? Why didn't he break it? Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, there's a way to not fulfill a foolish vow. He could have said, that was a stupid vow. I shouldn't have vowed that. Why doesn't he break it? I think there's two reasons. Number one, he doesn't break it because vows were important. Think about Jacob and Esau, right? The, the lying that was done. Um, Jacob lies... The birthright is given, the, the inheritance is given, the blessing is given to Jacob from Isaac. And when Esau comes back, Esau says, What happens? And finds out that Jacob had stolen it. If I'm Isaac, I would just go, um, You know what? Um, all that I said to Jacob, I was just, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. None of that mattered. Now let me actually give it to you. But he says, I, I can't go back on my word. I gave my word, I gave a vow. So vows were very important, but secondly, and deeper than that, I believe that he does not trust God. Jephthah does not trust God. There seems to be some level of mistrust that maybe if I break this vow, this vow is the only reason why I got the victory, and if I break this vow, I'm going to lose the victory somehow. Jephthah's actions are following someone who does not understand grace, this man thinks that God's favor needs to be earned through some crazy effort that he makes. Look at me, God, now give me blessing. He is a very zealous man, but the tragedy of his zeal is that he was sincere in his zeal, but he was sincerely wrong in his zeal. How does Jephthah get this way? To make such a terrible vow? A couple of ways. He's desensitized over time to the violence to the atrocities of the pagan cultures around him. I think that maybe we struggle with violence, but maybe more we're desensitized to the atrocities of sex or the atrocities of money that we see going on around us. Either way, I think the culture has desensitized Jephthah. Number two, Jephthah was not only infected by pagan morals, but also by the pagan works righteousness understanding of their character, the God's character. Human sacrifice was a way to pay, to buy off God, to pay him for something that you want. A pagan worshiper offering a human sacrifice is saying, let me show you how impressed I am and awed I am by your power, and therefore you will give me something that I want. Jephthah thought that the Lord needed to be impressed, but controlled through some lavish gift. This is incredibly bleak. I believe the writer means for us to see it as bleak and yet Yahweh's going to deliver through this. The whole scene is stained by the depravity of man, this atrocity of Jephthah, and yet God delivers. I think it's just an echo of we, we want a deliverer that doesn't do these things. We want a clean salvation, but if you want a clean salvation, you're going to have to wait for another deliverer. Just think about Gideon, the end of his delivering ended terribly, Abimelech. Jephthah's deliverance ends terribly. He's going to sacrifice his daughter. Samson's deliverance is going to end terribly as well. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. We see the rash vow that Jephthah makes. And yet, the unbelievable fact is that this man's name is still in Hebrews chapter 11. That's because Hebrews chapter 11 is not a place filled with names of people. We've, we've titled it the Hall of Fame of Faith, right? It's not amazing faith that people have. Some of them in there, definitely, yes. But some of them are there to show us the faithfulness of our God in the midst of the faithlessness of sinful humanity. Jephthah didn't get into the Hall of Fame of Faith because he earned it. And neither will you, neither will I. It's all God's favor and grace alone. You and I aren't impressive people. We are undeserving people, and the only way to meet God is through His grace alone. So, what can we learn from this incredibly sad account? Three things, and they're gonna take the remainder of our time because. I believe that we need to dive deep into the heart of Jephthah. Obviously, we can start off with be careful with your words, right? Be careful with your words. I think that that's a reasonable application from this text. Don't make rash vows. The only vow in the Bible that's backed up is the vow of marriage. Don't vow anything else, the Bible says. Make your yes, yes, your no, no. Don't offer sinful sacrifices to God. God's never pleased with your sinful choices. Don't steal money and give it to the church. Don't cheat on your taxes to give money to the church. God doesn't want that money, and He doesn't need that money. He, he desires righteousness. So don't make a terrible vow. Don't keep a terrible vow. Don't keep a sinful vow. If you make a stupid vow, break it. Again, I think the only vow in the Bible that's held up biblically, backed up, is the vow of marriage. If you sin going into marriage, the Bible says you can't just get out of it willy-nilly if you're a professing Christian. But I think other than that, if you make a, a stupid vow, break it. God's not honored by sin ever. You might say, well, breaking a vow would be sinful. Yes, but making the sinful vow was sin. You didn't sin by breaking it. You sinned by making it in the first place. So don't make dumb vows. We need to understand in these vows, God is silent. And I, I think that this is something that we need to be careful God's silence does not mean his endorsement. Um, I don't know if you operate that way with God's will, but a lot of people say, I'm praying for God to direct me, and I'm praying, and so far, he hasn't said no. Just because he hasn't said no doesn't mean he's saying yes, and that's not the way to find out the will of God anyway. That's another sermon for another time, but I don't think that God's silence Should ever just instantly be taken as his endorsement. So, first, I think in conclusion, we can learn don't make rash vows. Be careful with your words, yes. But I think that's surface level. I think that's surface level. I think a second point of application for us is that we are far more affected by the culture than we think. We are far more affected by the culture than we think. And we tend to be more affected by the culture than we are of the Bible. These people start worshiping pagan gods. They start bringing in pagan idolatry into their religion, and they start acting like pagan nations. And as we start to compromise in tiny little ways, small compromises lead to big consequences. They do. Little compromises that you and I make lead to huge consequences. Just ask Jephthah. Huge consequences. We're far more affected by the culture than we think. I think one of the Lessons that we learn from this man is that reasonable people do very unreasonable things. This man is a reasonable man. He, he just gave us one of the longest monologues in the entire historical section of books. He knows his history. He knows his theology. He knows how to reason. He's a logical man. But reasonable people do unreasonable things a lot. We have blind spots. And If we want to know the answer to what those blind spots are... We need to be regular, humble Bible readers, Bible doers in accountability and fellowship with others so that they can see, I I, I see in you a blind spot. Obviously, we can't see the blind spot because it's a blind spot. That's why we need to be in the church and in fellowship. I think this also tells us that knowing a lot about the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that you will live according to the Bible. This man knew a lot about the Bible, but knowing about the Bible is very different from living the Bible. So we're far more affected by the culture than we think. But finally, number three, not only should we be careful with our words, number two, we are far more affected by the culture than we think. But number three, and I I just, I want to camp here. God's people struggle to believe in God's grace. God's people struggle to believe in God's grace. The first lie that was ever told was told by the serpent, it was a lie of not trusting God's good character. Did God really say? He only wants you to not have that fruit because he doesn't like you. He knows it's going to be good for you, and he doesn't want you to have something that's good. And since then, since that lie, we've always felt that we have to control God, to pay God or to deserve something from God. We simply can't trust him, that he loves us and will bless us just because he loves us. If you bargain with God, you're not negotiating from a position of strength. When you bargain with God, ultimately you're saying, I know more than you, I am better than you, and I've got something good to offer you. You don't have anything. We don't have anything that God needs. We can't say, here, I've got something for you, and if I give this to you, will you give me something? That makes no sense when we're talking about the one who made everything, who knows everything, who owns everything. You have no position of power if you're trying to bargain with God. We see this a lot when it comes to sickness or illness, or especially with little children. You're crying out, God, please, anything. I'll do anything. I'll I'll, I'll give you anything if you would just spare my child. In those moments, we're forgetting that God loves that child more than, he, than we do. God loves that child more than we do. And we're not in a place to bargain with him. God's people struggle to believe that God is a gracious God. They do. I don't know if you're in that position, but right now I want to encourage you with the story of Christmas God sent his son while we were still dead in our sins. He did not send his son when we had our act together. That's grace. He sent his son in the midst of our sinful depravity to bring about our salvation, not because we could earn it, not because we have anything to offer him on our own. Even the good works that we have, Ephesians 2.10, those works are created in Christ Jesus beforehand that we would walk in them. So any good that we have is produced by God alone. So can I ask a question? And I believe that this question is on your discussion questions too. We're not going to be going through those during the Sunday school next uh, week because we're going to be talking about Christmas in Family Bible Hour. So uh, I wanted to put this question in the sermon and on your discussion questions and just ask you to genuinely contemplate this. In what ways would you live differently, more radically or more restfully if you really believe that God was completely committed to you to love you and to bless you, and to work what is best for you. Do you really believe that God is completely committed to you, completely loves you, desires to completely bless you, and to work what's best in your life? If you don't, and I think we all struggle to believe that, but if you don't, you're going to start thinking, I need to offer him something. I'm going to need to give something to him. And either you're going to be completely depressed because you know you have nothing to offer him, or you're going to start making rash decisions Like Jephthah to say, well, I don't have much to offer, but I have this really precious thing. The only thing that pleases God is faith in his son and the fruit that is produced by that faith. That's what pleases God. He doesn't need anything from you or from me to be pleased. Not our man-made, self-produced works. So how would you live differently if you lived free in the grace of God? you'd be off of that performance treadmill. Like God is somehow watching you and waiting for you to to be successful, to, to level up, and then when you level up, okay, now he'll pour more blessings on you. Guys, our God is a God of grace. This story is a story that cries out for a true deliverer, a true deliverer that would be the epitome of the grace of God on display. And I believe that there are echoes of the true deliverer in these pages. Jephthah had a controversial birth. He was born of a, a prostitute. And our deliverer, our true deliverer, the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ, had a very controversial birth. Nobody wanted Jephthah. He was driven out into the wilderness because nobody even wanted him. And yet, he becomes the answer to their prayers. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him, but he is the answer to their prayers. Jephthah was driven out into the wilderness. Jesus was driven out into the wilderness. Jephthah was despised and rejected. Jesus was despised and rejected. Jephthah gave deliverance, and that's where the similarities end because he gave deliverance imperfectly. He gave deliverance with a huge black mark on his record. Jesus gave deliverance, but he gave it perfectly. So for you and for me, as we stare at Jephthah, we stare at a man who struggled to understand grace. And I believe that all of us would admit, honestly, we struggle with that as well. We're all Pharisees at heart. Look at me. Look at the good I can do and bless me because of that. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to genuinely just stand at the foot of the cross. Nothing puts life into men, Charles Spurgeon said, like a dying Savior. Just look at the death of Jesus and let his grace on display dispel any notion in your heart or your mind that you need to do something for God to love you. No, simply trust that he does love you because of Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus, And let his love flow through you. Because he first loved us, we will love him. And if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. Fruit will be produced from faith. But the fruit that is produced is not fruit to earn God's favor. It's fruit that has just grown from a heart that knows God's favor has been freely given. To you and to me through Jesus Christ. God, thank you so much for this account that is very bleak, that is very disturbing. And it's an account that points to so many realities. But the greatest of all those realities is your goodness, your grace. Time and time again, we stray from a foundation of grace. We all struggle to think that we have to do something to Be loved by you. And yet, because of the Christmas story, we know that Jesus was born as a human, lived the sinless life that we needed to live to get to heaven on our own, but could never do on our own. And he died in our place, and that great exchange at the cross, you made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we could then become the righteousness of God in him. We're clothed in his righteousness so that you look upon us and you see holiness, the perfection of Christ, and you say over us, well done. I'm pleased in my beloved daughter, my beloved son. I'm pleased. God, I pray that your grace this morning would be our delight. Oh, how often I am tempted to treat our relationship based on my performance. God, I pray that you would set people free this morning from that performance mentality and that grace would be their heart's song both now and forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.